open your Bibles to uh, this Old Testament book, the second book in the, the uh, Bible, uh, Exodus. We've been studying through this uh, verse by verse. We come to really the hallmark portion of this book. This story that we're going to look at tonight is the most important story in the Old Testament. You'll find out why as we, this story uh, about the Passover, it, it, the implications of this story. And you'll get it as we go through this. It's so important, so significant. I mean, there are certain stories in the Bible or even in the world, like Jesus' birth. All the calendars are arranged because of that, right? Uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb, that, was a, that date is significant. It's the Passover in the Old Testament that becomes the most significant story for us to study. I mean, there's significant things in my life, in your life, a wedding, birth of a child, those kinds of things are important, right? But this one, again, this is so important, the Passover, uh, because the Passover is so much more than just a Jewish holiday. That's the first thing that we think of, that it's a Jewish holiday. And if you have never done a Seder dinner, we've had them here at the church uh, around Easter time, we do Seder, because that's when Passover is. If you've never done one, you should do one. Very significant, and those of you that have done it, you understand. You understand the story. You understand the significance of this story, but this story is so important. It's really separate from the other nine plagues. It's a plague, yes. It's number 10, but it, it, it's, it's different in that uh, this plague frees the children of Israel. It's the final one, and the way it frees the children of Israel is through death and through blood. And as we go through this, I want, I hope those of you that read the scriptures and you know about Jesus and his sacrifice, I hope that you see again and again. And I, you're going to hear me say, sounds familiar? You're going to hear me say that over and over again. And for those of you that read the Bible, you'll get it. The lamb that's sacrificed in the Old Testament, the lamb of God in the New Testament, and all of the, the inferences, you'll hear them as we go through here. But uh, again, as we've looked at each one of these individual plagues, remember the word plague in Hebrew means strike. God is striking out against the gods of Egypt, and he's doing it one by one, and he's, uh, Pharaoh has hardened his heart, meaning he's made his own decision not to obey God. He's God in his own eyes. The people in Egypt worship him, Pharaoh, as God, and he is not going to relent to anyone. And so God is is hardened his heart over and over again so that these plagues would continue. This is God's plan, his sovereign plan, that the plagues would continue to get so bad that, as you're going to see tonight, that the Egyptians are like, get out of here! <laughs> the Egyptians want the uh, children of Israel out of there. The Pharaoh wants the children of Israel, the Hebrews the, that become G the Jews. They want, he wants them out of the land as well, but but the, remember the ten plagues. They're they're uh, God challenging the gods of Egypt. They're acts of God. Some people call a weather event, a significant typhoon or hurricane, an act of God. In fact, you have insurance for your house, and you'll see that in all throughout the paperwork that most of us don't read, right? But we just sign it. I'm learning all about that, and the act of God. Uh, in our mind, is kind of a weather-related event. And some of the plagues are similar weather-related events. Like, there are those that believe that because it rained so hard in North Africa that all the tributaries that go to the Nile River overflowed its banks, causing it to turn red with red clay. Well, we believe that it wasn't a natural occurrence that just happened as a significant weather event. We believe that because Moses prayed and it started and Moses prayed and it stopped in a short period of time that it wasn't related to weather. But, but these different events, the, the wind blowing the flies in, remember, there's these weather events that you can see the act of God, but this is a specific act of God. In fact, this act of God is, is different uh, in that regard, because this is an act of God against the people of Egypt, against Pharaoh. And this act is going to kill people. This is God sovereignly slaughtering 
people that have been in defiance of him. As he's shown his power over and over, he's been gracious. Remember, he's been gracious. He's merciful. He's giving them time. He's warning them in advance. Are they listening to him? Nope. Who are they listening to? They're gods. They're still worshiping their idols. And so now they're going to be judged. God is sovereign. Don't let anybody tell you that the God of the Bible is a killer. That is not true. God will judge And you're judged based on your choices, your will. And and God is sovereign, and he makes sovereign choices. He he places upon people what he wills, and he's the one that decides if it's right or not. And in this case, he's going to judge these people. And these people, the firstborn in every family is going to die. Those who obey by an act of faith, and believe what God says, and do what God says, are spared. But those who disobey, those who by their own volition shake their fist at God, we see that in Revelation. You read Revelation, you see it all the time. The people in the world, even though there are witnesses, 144,000 Jews that come and witness of God, and the two Jewish witnesses that come and, and they, they proclaim Jesus, but the world shakes its fist at God, and they just, they will not relent. They choose by their own volition to disobey God, and we're seeing the same thing here. They don't act by faith. They don't trust in God. They don't believe God's word, and therefore, they're judged. The firstborn in their family is going to die. Now, it's really important for you to understand that the children of Israel here are going to obey their God. They've always believed in their God, but they've been crying out for some 400 years, save us. If you're really there, God, save us. We believe in God, but you haven't saved us, so they don't really have a lot of faith in God. But now they've seen God work in a miraculous way. They have a renewed faith, and they're listening to Moses. And now Moses is going to come and plead with them. And he's going to say, listen, this is how it's going to go down. God is going to deliver you, but he's going to do it through blood. Sound familiar? God is going to do this through blood. You're going to be delivered through blood. So this event of the Passover, it's going to point to Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind as you're reading this story. It's so important. And remember, this story was quite a a while before Jesus came. This is God, the same God yesterday, today, and forever and he's working in a miraculous way. And when you read this story, if, you don't, if your jaw doesn't drop and go, wow, God, you are so awesome. By the end of the st- story, you're thinking about muffins. That's all. <laughs> you're thinking too much about muffins. So let's pray and let's get into the word tonight. Father, I thank you for the word. And I pray that as we study it, that you would reveal its wonderful, wonderful truth. That we as your people would realize that you have a plan and you have a purpose and you want to deliver your people. And through the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, we see that you pre-pictured the deliverance that you would provide through your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and that we ourselves are delivered through blood. So help us, Lord, tonight as we study, help us to understand uh, this plague, this story. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. In Jesus we pray, amen, amen. Again, the title of the Old Testament book we're studying is Exodus. It means the way out. It's all about redemption. God is redeeming his people. They've been down in Egypt for many, many years, and he's going to bring them out of that land because he wants them to come and worship him. That's, that's been his whole argument the whole time. Let my people go that they might come and worship me. And so that's, that's what this is about. Now, I've entitled this chapter, these two chapters, chapter 11 and 12. We're not going to do all of 12 tonight. You'll notice it's very long. We're going to go as far as we can. But I've entitled this section, The Night Egypt Cried. The Israelites have been crying out for 400 years, but tonight it's going to be the Egyptians that cry. And these opening verses here in chapter 11, God is giving Moses specific instruction. Here's my first point, and we'll read this section. 
God's instructions about the Passover. So God begins after Moses comes back from uh, uh, visiting with Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. That's what the end of chapter 10 is all about. You see that in the end, those last verses. I'm going to kill you if I see you again. And Moses says, you'll never see me again. And then God comes to Moses, notice here in verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. So the, the plagues are against the people of Egypt because of their idolatry and they're, they're believing in this pantheon of gods and rejecting Yahweh. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. I just wonder, Moses, what he's thinking. You know, well, I don't know about this, God. You told me this over and over, but verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people. So this is the first time that God's told Moses to go and tell the people this. And he, Moses isn't telling the people until the end of way, way down in, in uh, chapter 12. But God is talking to Moses. He says, you're going to go tell the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. I bet all the people knew who he was and what happened when he prayed. They all know who Moses is. And Moses was a very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. Remember, he put the magicians down again and again. So he's mighty in their eyes now and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, verse 4, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, which is just a, a way the Hebrew would, that would show the lowliest hardworking woman, you know, that's just working behind the mill. So you have the Pharaoh all the way down to the hardworking woman here and all the firstborn of the animals. So not only ma uh, firstborn males were going to die, but the, the animals as well. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again, but against none of the children. None of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. I'll explain that in a minute. Against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Now, this 10th plague here, again, it's a judgment against another god. Remember, I've given you pictures of these, these different gods and goddesses that Egypt, uh, Egyptians worshipped. There's a pantheon of them. Here's a picture of Isis. You've probably heard of Isis. This is Isis here. Again, uh, she is painted on different things. I've actually seen a picture similar to this one at the British Museum from uh, one of the stones that the British pillaged and took home to their museum there. They took everybody's stuff. It's all in the British Museum. You should go there sometime and see it from all the places the, the Brits had conquered during their heyday. But Isis, again, is the god that's being assaulted against. The, the goddess Isis is the goddess of motherhood and fertility but primarily a birth or rebirth. So here you have Isis, the god, the mother god there in, in Egypt. She represents the birth of children. She was the protector of children. And here it is, uh, the gods of Egypt. They, they, what the people did in Egypt was similar to many other pagan societies. The firstborn in your family would be given to the gods of Egypt. That was required of you. If you were an Egyptian, you were required to give your child, your firstborn, even if it was an animal, your, your firstborn animal was to be given to the gods of Egypt in terms of sacrifice, not death, but in terms of giving to the gods of Egypt. And that child would then belong to the gods. But Yahweh, here in his final judgment against the Egyptian, is going to prove once again that he is sovereign and he is stronger, more mightier, than any of the gods that are there in Egypt. He's in control. 
And he is going to judge the firstborn that Egypt would have claimed for their gods. God is going to now destroy them. Again, every one of these plagues are against one of the gods of Egypt, but they have a, and, and that's their meaning. And then you also have God working in the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people to get the people out of Egypt. They, by the end of this, they're going to want those people so far out of Egypt, they don't even want them around. Again, that's God's purpose as well. Now, in verse 1, notice there, God tells Moses, one more plague. Notice he says, I will bring. So these plagues come directly from God, and then the result will be Pharaoh will drive you out. That's what God's point, his purpose is with all of these plagues. And this is the very last one here. Again, God's sovereign. God's in control. He even controls the heart of Pharaoh. Remember, he's hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had already decided, I'm not going to obey God. That's when God says, okay, I'll turn you over to your own. I'm going to make it even harder. And God did it over and over and over in the heart of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh now is going to beg the Israelites to leave. That's what the end result is going to be. And Moses um, is demanding, he's demanded that of Pharaoh, let my people go. God says, let my people go that they might come and serve me. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Well, finally, he's going to relent there. Verse 2, this is really interesting. Again, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of these verses before we move into chapter 12. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and gold. Now, I explained this uh, when we started this story, but when we get to the end of chapter 12, which is probably going to be next week, look there with me right now. Go to chapter 12, verse 35. This kind of gives a little explanation of what's going on here. Remember, Moses is getting the explanation, then Moses is going to turn to the people and explain to them in, in the first part of chapter 12, and then the second part of chapter 12 is all about what happens. So we're kind of getting replay in these chapters. That's why I'm trying to combine them here. But in verse 35 of chapter 12, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians for silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them whatever they requested. And notice what it says at the end of verse 36. They plundered the Egyptians. That word plunder is a very important word, and it kind of gives us understanding into what's going on here. When you plundered somebody, that means you conquered them. So these armies would go, ancient armies would go in, now, not like our modern-day armies where there's a whole list of history where America has gone in and, and destroyed like Japan, and then we spend all this money to rebuild it, right? Not so these ancient armies. These guys would go in, and they would take uh, and wipe out a people. They would kill the army. They would plunder. They'd steal all the booty. It's called booty. I mean, don't, don't laugh at that. That's what it is. It's, they would take the silver, the gold. They'd take all the valuable things from back to their homeland. And so that was called plundering, where they would steal the goods and steal some people as well, and they would use it for their own advantage. So plundering has to do with, with uh, winning a battle, conquering a people, and then taking those things. But in regards to the Israelites here, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, God orders the Israelites to go to the people that they're serving, the Egyptians, and say, by the way, I need some gold and silver. And the Egyptians instead of saying, well, what are you talking about? I'm not giving you my stuff for free. The, God had given favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and so this, these Egyptian people were giving. They're paying gold and giving silver to the Israelites here. Again, indicating a couple things, that God sovereignly is working to get what is necessary for these uh, Israelites as they travel through the wilderness and go back to Canaan. They're going to have all this stuff. Now, they use their stuff, some for good and some for bad, right? We know the story. They used some of the gold. They melted it down into what? A calf, and they worshiped. That was bad. That was using their stuff for bad. But then they used some of it for good. But all of this stuff that was given to them represents them as a nation being conquered. By who? 
by God. God conquered him. So now he's requiring payment for, like back payment, for 400 years of slavery and hard labor and all those stuff. God supernaturally, sovereignly causes the Egyptians to give gold and silver to his people. I, I love that. That's, it's just a beautiful truth there about God repaying his people. But going back to chapter 11, verse 4, then Moses said, that says the Lord, about midnight I'm going to go in the midst of, of Egypt. So that's when it's going to happen at midnight. And then who is going to be affected? Verse 5, the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. And then from Pharaoh to the, the handmaid there. So the children of Israel are in the land of Egypt. And you're supposed to get that as you read the story. Well, gee, is God going to kill his own people? Because they're in the land of Egypt. In other words, both Jew and Gentile are susceptible to the judgment of God here. Just like in the New Testament, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? Anyone can come by faith to Jesus Christ and be saved, putting their trust in him. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. In fact, that's the great mystery Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5, the mystery of the church. It's Jews and Gentile in one ecclesia, one body of believers. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. When they finally, the Jews had seen what Paul had expressed in those synagogues, that Jesus is Messiah. They had missed it the first time around. Some Jews, but many Gentiles. The church is formed, the book of Acts. Again, it's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Both Jew and Gentile, in the book of Exodus, they're both being judged. The difference is God loves his people. He's going to spare them because he's going to tell them what to do. And if they obey, they'll be spared. If by faith they'll trust the word of God and, and be obedient, then they'll be spared. The difference is here that the Hebrews are going to obey their God. And they're going to take the blood of the lamb, and that blood is going to save them. Sound familiar? Look at verse 6. It tells us that the pain of this event is going to be unparalleled there in Egyptian history, there'll be this great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as what was never heard like it before, nor shall will be again. Again, the irony of that truth I revealed earlier, and that's that, that the Egyptians had cried out, how long, O oh Lord, how long will we be enslaved? How long will we be in Egypt? How long? They cried out, cried out all the time. And now we're going to see the Egyptians, and they will... Uh, cry out. And the interesting thing is, who are they crying out to? They're not crying out to Yahweh. They're crying out to Gad and Fib and, and uh, all these different gods. I can't even remember their names. They're crying out to, but their gods are made up. Here's, that's the point. They're made up. They're fictional. They're false gods. Do their gods hear them? No. Do they get any relief from their gods? None. It's a deathly, their gods are deathly silent throughout this process because they're made up, they're false gods. And then the result, verse 7, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. Now, translate that into this phrase, not even a dog will growl, and it kind of helps you understand what's happening. God is going to completely protect his people. And this idiom, this Hebrew phrase that not even a dog will growl. Here's, here's, how many have dogs? You have dogs? When, we, we, we take care of the grand dog. We have a grand dog. His name is Rambo. He's a, he's a uh, little terrier of some kind. What is he? A schnauzer. He's a schnauzer. He's got the schnauz, you know. Funny looking little dog. Rambo. I mean, they look pretty tough. But if somebody drives in front of our house, guess what he does? If you go, if somebody comes into your house around your dog, cats are kind of like, cats are like, I don't know, cats, they're in some other world. But dogs, <laughs> dogs are alert, and dogs will growl, right? When somebody comes up to them, they'll growl. They're, they're giving an alert. So what this meaning is, not even a dog will growl. It's going to be deathly silent. And the children of Israel, they're not going to be bothered by anything. God is going to protect them. This is 
God working. I just love that. Not even a dog will growl there. And then verse 8, all your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out. And all the people who follow you after that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So Moses is telling Pharaoh now. He's going to go back and tell Pharaoh, um, not face to face, but he's going to mention to Pharaoh that that through, you know, that God is going to do this wonderful work and that God is going to free his people and, and you, you better watch out for what's coming next. And all the people are going to give an opportunity to obey God here. That's the, the truth of this story is everyone gets an opportunity to act by faith, believe God, and do what God requires, but only the Jews are going to do that. So after nine plagues, Pharaoh does not submit to God, and Moses has just been in his presence at the end of chapter 10, and he is threatened by Pharaoh, and Moses is mad. This ties back into the end of chapter 10, so Moses kind of storms out of the room, and I'm trying to think about that. I think Moses has empathy. I think Moses has Compassion, because he knows what God is trying to do in the heart of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is like, not going to do it. And Moses is like, come on, you got to do this. I mean, why would Moses is angry, at least at, I believe in this passage, because he has this sense that, Pharaoh, if you'll only turn, you'll spare your people. What are you doing this for? He's, he's angry. In verse 9, notice, it tells us that Pharaoh's heart was Again, hard. You're so proud. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. He's not going to listen. And, and this is kind of a recap, too. You know, he's not going to listen to you. He's, you're going to do all of these plagues, and there's a purpose. I'm trying to, to show these people, this nation of people, the Egyptians, that I have total power, and their gods will all bow to me. So Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So chapter 11 is kind of a, 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 you know, what's gone on before, kind of tying the whole thing up, and then moving us now into chapter 12. Again, I'm not sure how far we'll get there, but chapter 12 we get the details about the feast of the Passover. So these are the specific details about the feast of the Passover. The first 20 verses here in chapter 12 are the the specific instructions about the feast. And then from verse 21 to 30, Moses is going to now go take all that instruction that God gave him in chapter 11 and all the instruction he's received in the first part of chapter 12, and he's going to go to the people the Israelites can explain everything to them so they'll know exactly what to do. And then verses 31 to 42, Moses gives kind of this overview, a quick overview of, of what happened. And then the final verses, 43 through 51, are, again, more instructions for the children of Israel concerning the celebration of the Passover and unleavened bread. We're going to look at those Tonight, But we begin here in chapter 12, verse 1, and my point, the Passover instructions, here they are, to Moses, not to the people, but to Moses. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him take it according to the number of people that are there. You know, kind of work together if you have a small family. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, in this, we're learning that Passover is now going to be a required feast. It's on the calendar. God's putting it on the the calendar for these people. He wants them to celebrate this feast over and over to commemorate, to remember how he draws these people that have been in bondage out. 
He wants them to every year remember, you know, it's Easter and Christmas. You know, Christmas is over, but it's coming this next year, right? Easter is coming, and we, we do it again and again. So as older you get, you know, it's like, didn't we just do this last month? I mean, the year just goes by so quickly. But I love Christmas, and I, I love to remember all that it means, not just the ornaments and the tree and, and my lights on my house, but the significance of the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. Oh, I, I love to go over that over and over. I, I can't get enough of that story. And God wants these people to commemorate. He wants them to remember by calendar and by a specific week in their year this most important event. So he draws this out. He tells them this, when it's going to happen, what day it's going to happen. This is very significant. And he tells them how to do it and arrange their households so they can each have this, this lamb for their feast, this required feast. It's done by God. This isn't made by man. This isn't something men have come up with. God originates this feast. So first, they had to choose a lamb without blemish. That means they can't choose any lamb. They can't just pick any old lamb that comes down the road. And, and when you read this word lamb, again, in the Hebrew, it, it actually refers to, to sheep or goats. It's the same word used for both. They, these people, they just, this was their food source, their meat source. They, they did, didn't do a lot of cattle. Oxen pulled carts, but they ate lamb and, and, uh, or goat and sheep. And so this lamb really combines both of them, and that's why you could use either one. But any lamb, this particular sacrificial lamb had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So a young uh, yearling, a young lamb or a goat, take it from the sheet or the goats, right there at the end of verse 5. Now, you shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month. So they get it on the 10th day, and they keep it till the 14th day. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So we have the day, we have the spotless lamb, and, and now we know what we're to do with it. Back in verse 3, it says the 10th day of the month is when they would take this lamb into their house. This is the important part. They just didn't leave it outside in the garage or in the pen. They would bring this little lamb into the house with their kids, little fuzzy, furry lamb that was just very young, cute little lamb. I mean, you think of puppies, a cute little fuzzy lamb comes into the house, and, and it's adored by the kids. It becomes a family member for a few days. It's in the house. God wanted it to be in their house. Uh, it's really important that that lamb be in their house, and, the, and then it was on the 14th day, that they would, were instructed to kill it at twilight. Now, twilight, for these people, would have been between, you know, like three in the afternoon till six. Again, when was Jesus, he hung on the cross for so many hours, he died at three o'clock or so, wasn't it? I mean, again, this story is so beautiful. When you pick this story out and when you read about Jesus and understand all of his his uh, sacrifice and his death, it's, it's, it's uncanny. Only God could do this. It's, this is exciting. But again, this, this little lamb was loved and cared for by everybody in the home, partially because God wanted them to see it as valuable. It's an uh, unblemished animal. It's a valuable animal. And now it's valuable to the little kids. You know, if you had a two-year-old, she loves little lammy. She rides little lammy. She holds little lammy's leg, you know. She wants to see little Lammy the second, third, and the fourth day. She wants to see this little, little animal. God wanted the sacrifice to be precious to his people, so he has them bring it into their house. And then at the end of verse 6, they're ordered to kill it at twilight. They have to slaughter the spotless lamb. Now, verses 7 through 11 here, my next point this evening, instructions for eating the Passover. So we're not given all the details. They come later, but, but again, you'll, you'll get the story here. Verse 7, notice they have to take some blood from this sacrificed animal. They shall take some of the blood, verse 7, 
and put it on two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, think about this. If you're the, the man of the house, or maybe grandpa, I always, I always picture a grandpa in a house, and he's the firstborn, but he's living with his family, and he has a firstborn son he's living with, and then his son, his, his grandson, he's a firstborn. There's three firstborn in this guy's house, and he is like, son, did you, did you do what God said? Did, did you put the blood on the, the doorpost and the lentil? Did you put that blood on the doorpost and the lentil? You see what's happening here? The doorpost and the lentil? Sound familiar? Again, this story, it just, the more I read it, the more it blows my mind. These Jews are going to celebrate Passover over and over, and they do it with this blood on the doorposts. They're going to remember, as they put the blood on the doorposts, as Grandpa says, son, did you do that? It's almost twilight. Did you put the blood on the doorposts and lentil? I'm concerned about my family. Did you do that? Yes, Dad, I I, I put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. We're covered, Dad. It's it's on there. And that blood would have stained the doorpost and the lentil. A month later, five months later, every time they go in and out of the house, what do they see on the Doorpost and the lentil. They see this spattered blood reminding them over and over and over again that they were delivered because of this lamb that was sacrificed. Then, verse 8, they shall eat the flesh on that night. Roasted, though, very specific in fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Spurgeon says this, I I love what he writes, the lamb was not killed in order to be looked at, but to be eaten, meaning Jesus was not slain so that we, we might just hear about him or talk about him, but that we might feed upon him, draw our life from Jesus Christ. I like that. Then notice, these people are told that they're not to eat it raw. Remember, back in Genesis, you remember a couple of years ago, you have to drain the blood. God doesn't want any lifeblood being consumed at all. But here it is. They had to barbecue it. They couldn't eat it raw. Do not eat it raw, verse 9, or boil it with water. But you need to barbecue it, roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. So the whole animal gets put on a stick and on the rotisserie. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it in morning you shall burn with fire. The, the idea behind eating it all was that they had to make a decision at that point in time to cook it, to consume it, and, and live off of that for that moment and not to live off of it in the refrigerator like I had some prime rib that we cooked on Christmas Eve and I, it keeps going back. We had such a big piece that it just keeps going back in the fridge. We've been eating off that thing for days, actually weeks. I love, it's really good, with barbecue sauce and on white bread. Anyway, these people were told only to eat it that one time. And again, that's, God wanted them to realize, you make a decision, you go all in, you consume it, and then there's nothing left over. You don't go back to it later. When we come to Jesus Christ, we're either all in, we consume it all, you don't, you don't come to Jesus Christ halfway. You don't come to Jesus Christ and say, well, you know, for the religion, for the fire insurance, you know, I'll kind of believe, kind of think about it. No. You consume it. You eat it all, all at one time. You come to Christ. You commit your whole life to him. Again, in verse 8, they're commanded to eat with this barbecued lamb unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Eating the unleavened bread would just signify to them because what's going to happen, this Passover is going to take place and then they got to beat feet out of there. There's no time to, to pack or, or cook bread for a long journey. They're going to have to just eat unleavened bread. There's, there's no leaven in their bread. They've got to eat that unleavened bread. There's no time for it to rise and they've got to eat and leave quickly. The bitter herbs there are a reminder that 
They were in bondage for hundreds and hundreds of years. So they eat these bitter herbs, and that just reminds them. This, again, this is the Seder feast that's even consumed today at Passover. It's a couple months away, they're going to be Passover. If you have a chance to go to a Seder feast, you should do it because you're going to eat a bitter herb. It's, and that's, it's the reminder to these people that they were in bondage and unleavened bread, that they didn't have time to wait around. They had to get going. And then verse 11, and thus you shall eat it. Notice, with a belt on your waist and your sandals on, so you're all dressed up, ready to go, staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, all of this symbolism here in the feast is to illustrate this deliverance that God is doing in a miraculous way for his people. All of these things are significant. And they had to keep the Passover by faith. These people uh, were told to trust Moses and believe what he said, and they had no reason to doubt. I mean, he'd just done these, these nine miracles, started and ended when he spoke these plagues that came against Egypt, and not against them, by the way. It didn't happen where the Egyptians were. It just happened to the, or the, the uh, Israelites were. It only happened where the Egyptians were, as you recall. And so... In Hebrews, I've got this verse here, which gives us this important point about keeping the Passover by faith. In Hebrews, the author says this, notice behind me on the screen, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So this was done as an act of faith. The Passover and eating it was even done as an act of faith. And at the end of verse 11, It is the Lord's, Yahweh's Passover. In other words, God's provided this. Yes, there's a lamb. Yes, it was in your house. But it is all provision of God. This is all an act of God to deliver his people. Passover is all about God rescuing his people, delivering them from bondage and delivering them from sin. Egypt represents bondage and sin. And God is going to get his people out of there into the land that he's promised them, flowing with milk and honey. And so Egypt always represents that bondage and sin. The Passover is the people's reminder. It's even our reminder. I mean, we don't celebrate the Passover, but I'll tell you, it's a very significant feast. And again, if you have a chance to do a Seder, you should do one. Because you'll realize in that that Yes, God was delivering his people and the significance of each and every one of the items in the Passover meal. Point two, this meal that was done so long, a point two, Jesus Christ. It's a perfect, perfect backdrop for the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who would later come and provide our rescue. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says this. I love this verse. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Again, all these verses sound familiar, but this one's very interesting. The, The lamb would be brought into the home. Jesus came into the world to become one of us. He lived among us. He walked among us. It was three years of ministry. You know, he's 33 years old is what we think. We don't know, but we think. And uh, in those three years of ministry, he was moving among us. He was brought into our home. Jesus, the Passover lamb, he was spotless. The Bible says again and again, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So Jesus never sinned. He never did anything immoral. He never had a sinful thought like you and I. He's 100% Man as if he wasn't God. He was 100% God as if he wasn't man. He was the perfect, not, not part God, part man. Don't think that way. All God walked on water, healed people. Remember the story of the leper? Forgave sin like God. He did everything that God would do, but he was still a man. He hurt, he cried, he bled, he wept, just like you and just like I. So Jesus perfect, perfect sacrifice, lived in this world, died for our sin. His death 
was touched by the fire of God's judgment. Think about that. The judgment of God. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying, Father, if it be your will, I, I, I can't drink this cup. Let this cup pass. It wasn't I can't. He said, let this cup pass. Because he knew the fire of God's judgment was coming. In our case tonight, the Passover lamb was the fire of judgment. And in the death of Jesus, he received hyssop. Remember the hyssop that was offered? He actually didn't receive it. It was offered to him, but he didn't receive it. Hyssop. The Passover work of Jesus sets the believer free from bondage and sin. But it all comes from, notice here, and we're getting into the blood here. We're, I'll go really quick and then I'll stop and we'll pick it up next week. Verse 12, protection through the blood. Look at this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And here it is, against all the gods of Egypt. Remember, I've been telling you that's what his plagues were against. Sometimes we miss that, but here it is plainly in the scriptures. He said, God says, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's the name, Passover. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For Israel, again, they're going to be spared of this deadly judgment, but they still have to exercise faith. They still have to apply the blood. Just like you and I, if you want salvation, you have to come to Jesus by faith. No amount of religious works, no amount of righteous deeds, no amount of anything you can do is going to appease you to God. The only thing that will make you in right standing and give you righteousness of of God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that comes by faith. Jesus shed his blood willingly. He took your place on that cross and died there for you, and we believe that by faith. And when God sees the blood, death is averted. When God sees the blood of Jesus in you, instead of judgment, you go to heaven. On, on, upon death, there's, there, it's appointed for man. Every man wants to die, and after this, what? Judgment, okay? So you, when you do die in Christ, you are, avert that judgment because you have the blood of Jesus, and you go directly to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That's what happens. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. But again, we see it here in this wonderful story. It was the blood of the lamb in obedience to God's word that brought protection for these Israelites. If an Israelite didn't believe and didn't obey, they would have been judged. If an Egyptian believed and made the proper Passover sacrifice, they'd be spared. That's the truth of this story. God was teaching the Israelites a very, very important spiritual point here. And the main thing was that they had to exercise their faith absolutely in a way that God prescribed. God has one way. There's not five ways. Well, Pastor Lee, you know, I'll go to this church and go to that one. And and I kind of, you know, like kind of some of the things the Catholics say or some of the things the Mormons say or some of the things that Baha'i says. I kind of amalgam of different things. You know, I'm kind of right in what I believe. I've really read, read and researched, and I would say there's only one way. To God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and well, some of you guys that believe other things can come to God through me. Did he say that? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the Father but by me. One way. This is God. Well, Pastor Lee, you're being so exclusive. I'm not being anything. I'm telling you what Jesus said. If you have an argument with that, you have an argument with a God of heaven. Be careful. But I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you have too. Because if you have, you escape judgment because of the blood. We have protection through the blood. The only protection for these Israelites and the Egyptians, by the way, was the blood of the lamb. For the Israelite. 
They had to put it on their door by faith for you and I. We have to believe in God's sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, and we must put our faith in him. And when we do, we avert death and we are given the gift of eternal life. Oh, Christian and non-Christian tonight, hear the word of the Lord and obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word. What a powerful display. What a beautiful interwoven story in life. The Passover. The significance of which I think sometimes I don't even catch all of it. And Lord, when I look at it as I did this week and tonight, as we look at it together as your people, we're in awe. Your plan, your provision, your love your devotion, the opportunity that's offered to both Jew and Gentile, the, the wicked Egyptians were given and shown your mercy over and over and over, and yet they had to obey. And Father, I pray tonight, as I've read this story, expounded on this text of Scripture, that if there's anyone here tonight that's never come of faith in Christ. They've never believed in Jesus Christ or the gospel, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus sacrificed his life and died on the cross, and by his blood that he shed willingly, vicariously for me, for anyone in this room, if you'll believe that gospel plan by faith and receive that gift of eternal life that's offered, that you too will be saved. Father, do the work that only you can do. Reveal yourself in this precious story to these, your people. And may we, Lord, be in awe and wonder and worship the God of the heavens, this sovereign, wonderful, awesome God. We love you, Yahweh. We are so grateful for your plan of salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.